0: What would the church be like if Christians understood that this post-Christian culture is about to be set aflame by the wrath of God? What would our witness be like if we saw the spiritual condition of unsaved family and friends as it actually is? Finally, what if we accepted personal responsibility and helped snatch them from the fire? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the book of Jeremiah. Over recent weeks, we've been building on the theme of promise and deliverance. Today, we'll hear how Christians can be spiritual firefighters. Phil, the theologian John Calvin has referred to today's chapter as the proof of all Jeremiah's former doctrine. What do you mean by that? Well, Mark,
1: all through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has been prophesying judgment that will fall on the people of God. And here, finally, in chapter 39, we see all of those judgments coming true. It's the proof that Jeremiah has spoken the truth. Here is a city defeated by enemies, besieged by conquerors coming down from the north, people suffering famine, the city burned with fire and laid waste, and enemy kings coming in and setting up their thrones in the streets of Jerusalem. All of these things, Jeremiah very very specifically prophesied, and all of them came true.
0: Well, we hear the word judgment repeated throughout today's sermon, Phil. In really clear terms, can you tell us how we can prepare ourselves for this eventuality?
1: Mark, anytime we see in the world a sign of God's judgment falling on people because of their sins, or even anytime we see just a natural disaster that reminds us that one day this world will be destroyed, it should always cause us to think about the state of our own soul before a holy God. You know, everything the Bible says about the final judgment is going to come true, that the entire universe will be destroyed and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible says the only way to be safe in the final judgment is to trust in Jesus Christ. And as soon as that becomes clear to you, you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and then you want to share the message of his grace with others so that they too can be saved from the judgment to come.
0: Well, thank you, Phil. We're in Jeremiah 39, where you can turn now to listen to God's word for us today.
1: Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations." Men stalked us at every step so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. These lines of poetry from the book of Lamentations were written by the prophet Jeremiah. They form an eyewitness account of the last desperate days leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. For after 18 months of siege, the Babylonian army had finally marched into Jerusalem in July of 587 B.C. According to Josephus, the historian, the battering ram, took its last run at the walls. Darts from the enemy siege mounds arched into the midnight sky and struck their mark in flames. And five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem their faces illuminated by the flames of destruction. Now these historical reports have been confirmed by the archaeologist Catherine Kenyon, who has shown how the walls and houses of Jerusalem were reduced to rubble at this time. That event, the fall of Jerusalem, was an epical event in world history. For that city did not regain its power under Jewish rule until the middle of the 20th century, more than 2,000 years later. And it was also an event most important in redemptive history. For in this chapter, we find the proof that all God's promises of judgment come true. Jeremiah's report of the day of judgment is very restrained. It is a sober account of the fall of Jerusalem, explaining who occupied the city and when and how. This is how Jerusalem was taken. He begins, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. And then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate, Nergal Shareser of Samgar, Nebo Sarsicum, Nergal Shareser, a high official, and the other officials of the king of Babylon. This is how ancient generals claimed victory over a defeated city. They came and took their seats in the city gates in triumph. Jeremiah lists the names of some of these Babylonians to show that Judah's conquerors speak a strange and unfamiliar tongue. And to this day, some of the words used in this verse are inexplicable by scholars of ancient languages. Now, once the Babylonians took the city, they set fire to the royal palace, as we read in verse 8, and the houses of the people, palaces, houses, walls, everything, was torched. And then the best and the brightest of the Jews were carried off into exile in Babylon. Now these verses form the climax of the book of Jeremiah. For from the very first verse of the very first chapter, Jeremiah's prophecies have marched relentlessly toward the day when Jerusalem would be destroyed. And although his tone is very matter-of-fact, every word strikes like a hammer. For on the day of judgment, every promise God ever made about the fall of Jerusalem came true. I will not read all of these references, but God said disaster would come from the north. Chapter 1, verse 14, and others, and disaster did come from the north. He said a strange and foreign nation would come and attack, and a strange and foreign nation did attack. God said Jerusalem would be surrounded and besieged, and so it was. He said there would be famine in the land, and there was a famine in the land. He said that in their hunger, the people of Jerusalem would eat their own children, and so they did. The list of fulfilled prophecy goes on and on. God said death would enter the city. He said the kings would come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 15. And that is exactly what we read in chapter 39. The kings came, they conquered, and they sat. God promised that the city would be burned, and it was burned to the ground. And then God promised that Nebuchadnezzar would be seen by Zedekiah with his own eyes, chapter 34, verse 3, and Zedekiah saw him with his own eyes. God even promised through the prophet Ezekiel in a most Curious promise, it seemed at the time, that I will bring Zedekiah to Babylonia, but he will not see it, and there he will die. Well, of course, this prophecy was fulfilled when Zedekiah was blinded before his arrival in Babylon. He did go to that great city, and yet, in fulfillment of the word of God, he never saw it. So you see that this fall of Jerusalem confirmed many specific promises of divine judgment. All of Jeremiah's prophecies of destruction came true. So John Calvin refers to this chapter as the proof of all Jeremiah's former doctrine. Lest there be any doubt who has brought these things to pass, the Lord himself says in verse 16, I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster. You know, many of Jeremiah's contemporaries doubted that the day of judgment would ever come. Religious leaders of his day went around saying, peace, peace, rather than prophesying the sword. And so by and large, the people of Jerusalem did not believe in the wrath of God, despite many warnings to the contrary. And the same thing is true in the present day person on the street lives in general ignorance of the return of Christ the final judgment is generally treated as a subject for humor the man who carries the sign which reads repent for the end is near is either mocked or at best ignored the place that hell is most often referred to in our culture is on the comics page in the newspaper Doubts about the reality of divine judgment and eternal damnation have also entered the church, and so it is that one writer has asked, whatever happened to hell? Well, the apostle Peter promised that all of these things would happen. He said, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And Peter was right. By and large, the people of this generation do not believe in the wrath of God, do not look for the coming of Christ, and do not fear the day of judgment. Therefore, the question must be asked and answered. What does the Bible say will happen on the day of judgment? First, The Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will return personally. As the angel promised to the disciples, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will return impressively. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. He will return visibly, as the Apostle John saw in his vision. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And that personal, impressive, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ will be sudden and cataclysmic. The present heavens and earth Reading from Second Peter chapter three are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. No person knows when the day of judgment will come. But when it comes, everything in the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. The burning of Jerusalem was a warning about what will happen at the end of history. The entire cosmos, the whole universe with all its stars and its comets and its planets and its galaxies will be destroyed in fire. It will undergo instantaneous heat death and further. The Bible says that that day will be a day of reckoning, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. The dead will be raised, and every man and woman and child who has ever lived will be gathered before the throne of God for judgment, and then God will give to each person according to what he has done, for all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is how the Lord Jesus himself describes that scene. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then there is a second great question to be asked and answered about the Day of Judgment. The first great question has already been asked and answered from Scripture. What will happen on the Day of Judgment? But the second question must be answered within every human heart. What will happen to me on the day of judgment? For not everyone will meet the same end. There will be two different kinds of people on the Day of Judgment, the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous. These two kinds of people will have two very different destinies. Some will be saved and the rest will be lost forever. Some will enter into the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, the city of gold, entering through the pearly gates, while the rest will be condemned to an eternal hell of fire. For Jesus himself promises that the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And can you see the way that the fall of Jerusalem, the way that it was committed to the flames, is a picture of the final judgment? For on that day there were also two kinds of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, and they met two very different ends. Some were lost, and some were saved. Some were redeemed, and some perished. Zedekiah was lost. Zedekiah, you may remember, was the king who could never make up his mind whether he wanted to follow God or not. And so when the day of judgment came, there was no one to save him but himself. The Bible gives this glimpse of his desperate attempt to escape in verse 4. Zedekiah and all the soldiers saw the Babylonians coming and they fled. They left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gates between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. Well, it was a nice try, but they didn't get very far, for the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and they captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar at Riblah, where he pronounced sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. And thus, Zedekiah received the punishment that God had long promised for his sins and worse. For although Jeremiah had always prophesied that he would see Nebuchadnezzar with his own eyes, what he did not say is that Zedekiah would see his own sons, the princes of Judah, butchered before his very eyes. And that was, you notice, the last thing he ever saw before his eyes were lost forever. For in this brutal act of revenge, Nebuchadnezzar decided to blind him as well as to bind him. This blinding may well remind us of the blinding of Gloucester in Shakespeare's King Lear. In that story, taking knife to eyeball, his wicked daughter Cornwall says, Out, vile jelly. and Gloucester says, All, dark and comfortless. For Zedekiah, as for Gloucester, all was dark and comfortless. And we may well imagine that on his long, slow, dark march to Babylon that he may have longed for death. But the day of judgment turned out to be worse than he could have imagined. There are many people there May, I suppose, be some of them here tonight who hope to escape the day of judgment. And yet their hopes are vain. They doubt the personal, visible return of Jesus Christ to judge the world. They deny the existence of hell. They think that they are good enough to get to heaven. They hope that the wrath of God has somehow been exaggerated. And so like Zedekiah, they hope to slip out the garden door and run for dear life at the last moment. Yet Jeremiah 39 stands as a warning against every naive hope of escaping the judgment to come. For to his dismay, Zedekiah discovered that the day of judgment may turn out to be a living hell. The very saddest thing about the final chapter in Zedekiah's tragic story is that the king could have written a happy ending for himself. For right up until the very end, God gave him every opportunity to repent for his sins. We saw it last week in chapter 38. Repeatedly, Jeremiah came to Zedekiah and pleaded with him to turn to God in faith and repentance so that he might be saved on the day of judgment. And yet the king rejected every last entreaty. And if you sit where you sit tonight and sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, warning you about the judgment to come, do not be so foolish as this foolish king For at this very moment, God is holding out to you the possibility and the promise of escape. He is holding out to you the opportunity of escaping the judgment to come. If only, if only you will repent for your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that on the day of judgment you may find a safe place to stand. For happily as we discover as we continue to read in this chapter, not everyone will be lost on the day of judgment. For although the fall of Jerusalem was a day of damnation for some, it was a day of salvation for others. And as the city burned, Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech were delivered from death like two brands snatched from the flames. Jeremiah was saved from judgment because... and. This comes as a surprise. He had friends in high places. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, and I am reading in verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah, take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. Even in the chaos of this fallen city, Jeremiah was not forgotten. Why Nebuchadnezzar took notice of him is a great mystery. Perhaps It was because Nebuchadnezzar had respect for prophets. Perhaps some of the Jews who had deserted to the Babylonians told him about this strange prophet who begged the city to surrender. In any case, by the providence of God, Jeremiah's life was spared. And we are encouraged by this to know for a certainty that God will not forget the believer on the day of judgment. You know, it is very easy to be overlooked in this world. Every day people get left behind by the bus, or someone forgets their birthday or their anniversary, or some application gets misplaced, or the many kindnesses that we do go unthanked. And yet God will not leave behind or forget or misplace a single believer on the day of judgment. Like Jeremiah, every child of God will be remembered and saved and preserved and protected on the day of divine judgment. And we see that for Jeremiah, he was not only saved, but he received a royal escort. Nebu the commander of the guard, and Nebu and Nergal Shah and the other officers sent and had Jeremiah taken out of the courtyard of the guard. then Jeremiah was received into the happy care of godly friends. They turned him over to Gedaliah to take him back to his home. And so Jeremiah remained among his own people. It's a beautiful picture of the hospitality of one believer for another. You may remember that Gedaliah was a good man. He was a member of one of the godliest families left in Jerusalem, maybe the only one for all we know. He was the grandson of Shaphan, who brought the book of the law to King Josiah. And he was the son of Ahikam, who defended Jeremiah's life back in chapter twenty six when he was accused of blasphemy. So God used a friend from this good family to save Jeremiah's life. But you know, you do not need to be some famous prophet to be delivered from destruction. Jeremiah 39 ends with a flashback to show the salvation of a slave. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him, Go and tell Ebed-Melech, I am about to fulfill my words against this city through disaster. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life, because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Now these words had been spoken sometime earlier by the prophet Jeremiah, but they explain what would happen to Ebed-Melech on the day of judgment, and that is why we find them recorded at the end of this chapter. God gives him in these verses a quintuple guarantee of salvation. I will rescue you. You will not be handed over. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but you will escape with your life. And that last word for life is actually the word for booty, the word for plunder taken in combat. It is as if in the context of battle that Evan Melek will preserve his own life like a battle prize. Now, if you have a very good memory, you will remember that Evid Melek was the servant who rescued Jeremiah from the mud. And when Evid Melek heard that Zedekiah had thrown Jeremiah into a cistern to die, he went to the king to plead for his life. With the king's permission, he pulled the prophet to safety, and he very thoughtfully even took some soft rags to pad Jeremiah's armpits as he was pulled up to safety. Ebed-Melech saved Jeremiah's life. And then on the day of judgment, when many others were being lost, God saved Ebed-Melech's life. And this is an Old Testament hint that God offers salvation in Christ to all the nations of the world. For you will notice that Ebed-Melech was a Cushite from Ethiopia or from the Nubian empire, and thus he is one of these notable North Africans of the Bible. Like the Ethiopian eunuch to whom Philip preached and also whom Philip baptized, this African man shows that the gospel is for every tribe and people and nation. The good news of salvation in Christ is for black and for white and for red and for brown, for every race and nation of the world. But notice especially the basis of ebed Melik's salvation. He was not saved because God owed him a favor. If ever a man could have been saved by works, it would have been ebed Melik. His rescue operation demonstrated a hatred of injustice and a great love for the ministry of God's Word. But he was not saved because he rescued Jeremiah from the cistern. And you will notice that in these verses at the end of chapter 39, not one word is said about that courageous act. Evan melech was not saved by that work or by any other. He was saved by grace through faith. Did you notice this wonderful detail from verse 18? I will save you because you trust in me. So one scholar comments that Ebed-Melech's trust in the Lord saved him from the fate of the rest of the city. God did not commend Ebed-Melech for his compassion or courage, but only for his trust in God. We might well say that Ebed-Melech was saved by grace through faith, and this not from himself, it was the gift of God, not by works. Thus it is that Jeremiah 39 is one of the places where the Old Testament gives a hint of the doctrine of justification by faith alone a doctrine more clearly and fully explained in the New Testament salvation is by grace through faith not by works even someone who has performed a great many good works even someone who has performed as many good works as Mother Teresa, that saint of the gutters in Calcutta, as she has been known. Even such a person with such good works cannot be declared righteous before God on the basis of personal merit. A believer does not stand before God on the basis of his or her own imperfect righteousness Rather, the believer stands covered with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. And so in these verses, we see this most vivid and accurate picture of salvation, not simply of the salvation of that day, but the salvation that there is from the judgment to come. Jeremiah and Ebed-Melech were like two brands plucked from the burning city. And in the same way, every sinner who comes to Christ in faith is like a branch snatched from the flames. We find this image repeated throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. Amos said to Israel, you are like a burning stick snatched from the fire. The angel of the Lord described Joshua, the high priest, as a burning stick snatched from the fire. Every believer is a brand from the burning. And if that is so, then it is the responsibility of every Christian to save other perishing souls from the flames. There is too little urgency in the church for the salvation of the lost. And may I say it like this, there is too little urgency for the lost in this church. What would it be like if we understood the spiritual condition of our family members and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our casual acquaintances, the spiritual condition of those dear souls as it actually is? What if we understood that the unbeliever, as it were, is almost already set aflame by the judgment of God? And what then if we accepted personal responsibility to help snatch them from the fire? Not simply to perform one or two casual acts of evangelism, but to have an entire evangelistic mindset that is driven by this great concern for the souls of the lost. You see, this is how the New Testament writer Jude teaches Christians to think about the lost in exactly these terms. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. Do others show mercy mixed with fear? An entire course on Christian apologetics could be developed from these Verses, But notice especially the urgency in Jude's second instruction. Snatch others from the fire and save them. And this is perhaps the best short description of evangelism in the Bible. It describes the work of missions. It describes the work of preaching. It describes the work of personal evangelism. It describes the work of lifestyle evangelism and friendship evangelism snatch others from the fire and save them for being snatched from the fire is exactly what happened to Jeremiah and to Ebed-melech on the day when Jerusalem was burned and by God's grace it is what will happen to you and to me on the day of judgment you know the day of judgment will certainly come and on that dread Day, every soul which has ever lived will be gathered before the judgment seat of Christ. And the same division will be made that was made on the day Jerusalem fell. There will be only two kinds of people, the righteous and the unrighteous, the elect and the reprobate, the sheep and the goats, the redeemed and the damned. And on that day, the enemies of God will be lost forever to the praise of God's justice. And yet, like so many brands from the burning, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved from judgment and they will certainly enter into eternal life. And everyone who understands these things will make every effort to be found among the sheep on that day and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. And not only that, but everyone who understands these things will make every effort to make sure that others also will be counted among the sheep and will be saved on that day. The great Scottish minister, Thomas Boston, once preached a long series of sermons on heaven and hell. When he came to the end of that series, he closed as I close tonight with these words. And now, if you would be saved from the wrath to come and never go into this place of torment, flee unto Jesus Christ by faith. Sin in you is the seed of hell, and there is no other way to get it removed but by receiving Christ as he is offered in the gospel for justification. And he is now offered to you with all his salvation. And the terrors of hell, as well as the joys of heaven, are set before you to stir you up, to receive him with all his salvation, and to enter into the way of faith and holiness, in which alone you can escape the everlasting fire. May the Lord himself make these words effectual to that end. Our Father in heaven, this is our prayer, that these words from Scripture, that these words as they have been preached which have set forth the way of salvation and the way of destruction would be clearly understood and that once understood they would be kindled into a lively faith within the heart and that the men and women and children gathered here tonight would trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and turn away from sin, that they might be among those who are saved on the day of destruction. And we pray this not only for those who are gathered here tonight, but for the family members whose souls are heavy on our hearts, for our neighbors, for our coworkers for those for whom we have prayed that they might receive Christ unto salvation, and indeed, for this entire city and for those under the ministry of our missionaries throughout this world, we pray that these words might be effectual to salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ,
0: amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.